0: Uh, all right. Well, thank you all for letting me come back. Uh, I enjoyed being here with you guys last week. I <clears throat> I guess probably I should have saved like my best sermon for today because if everybody was saying really nice things, you know, I don't want anybody to come and be let down. But no, I'm just kidding. Uh, let me just apologize and apologize in advance. I'm horsed, a little bit hoarse today. I've been fighting a summer cold this whole week. I will try not to snort and hack into the microphone, but... Uh, <clears throat> there I just did uh but anyway, so that's that's what's wrong with me today. If you have your Bible, please go ahead and open it to James Chapter One, James chapter One, last week uh I introduced this topic to you about the trials in life and our God's purpose for allowing them into our lives. Now, we come to the book of James, and uh we believe that James wrote this letter shortly after the martyrdom of Stephen. You know, around the time Stephen was stoned to death there in Jerusalem, the mood of the unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Jews, In Jerusalem had turned against the new Christians. They didn't see them anymore as this strange little sect over here as Judaism. They were finally beginning to see them as something that needed to be reckoned with. And they reacted very negatively, to put it mildly. And so after the martyrdom of Stephen, the Jerusalem church went underground. As believers began to fear for their own lives, and a big portion of the Jerusalem church scattered, the ones who who remained went underground and the others Scattered, and we're glad there did because it went as far as a place of called Antioch of Syria, who later would send out Paul and Barnabas as the first missionaries. All this happened right after, and in a sense, as a result of the martyrdom of Stephen. And I didn't bring much into the sermon last week about the martyrdom of Stephen as the as the context for the letter of James. But when you think about it. what you see happening to the first church after the martyrdom of Stephen is indeed some of what we saw talked about in last week's sermon or some of what we discussed in the sermon last week. We see that sort of played out in what happened. We see that even though they weren't spared from those trials and persecutions, God used them to craft them into the people that he would have them to be for his purposes later on down the road. So it's really Uh, fascinating, you know. Some of the reformers didn't like the book of James. Martin Luther didn't care for the book of James. I'm going to part ways with him on that, Um, humbly, you know. I'm not going (laughs) to, this giant of the faith, but uh, he thought it was too heavy on works. But you come to the book of James, and what you realize about the book of James is James isn't writing about works for salvation. James is writing about the works that are produced by salvation, and how that plays out in the life of a believer. So I don't think you have to reconcile friends, so I don't think we have to reconcile Paul's letters with James letters, James letter. Uh, I think we come to the letter of James and it serves a very different purpose. It's written specifically to believers, in this case believers who were dealing with some pretty heavy stuff, and James is saying this is how your salvation should affect your works in your life as a believer. And so he begins the letter talking about spiritual maturity and discussing something that was very timely and pertinent for these first century believers, the trials of life. And I think we would say that it's not, was not only pertinent and, and timely for the lives of those first century believers, but it's a subject that's always relevant and always timely for any believer, is dealing with the trials in life. And so last week we looked at verses two through four And we looked at them in the context of understanding them and recognizing what God's purposes might be or are for those trials in our life. Because James wanted his listeners, his readers, to know that all kinds of trials were to be expected events. That was from last week's sermon, right? Expected events. So he says, when, in verse 2, when you face trials of various kinds. And he wanted us to know the purpose. We saw that, right? Trials prove our faith. Do we really believe what we say we believe or is it talk? They prove our faith. They produce perseverance, right? Because we said it's in the midst of our trials that we truly begin to understand what it means to stand firm in the Lord and to stand firm in the power of his might. And then we said trials promote spiritual maturity. They make us Fully grown to use the language that James uses here in the letter. They make us mature and ready to be used by God in service to Him. And then He wanted us to see that there's a right response and that it's joy. And we know that joy and happiness are not the same thing. Happiness can be rather circumstantial. I can find joy. You can find joy. We can have joy, which is a fruit of the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives. We can have joy in the midst of circumstances that don't make us particularly happy, all right, joy, Uh, and that's where we left off last week, and that brings us then to verse 5, so if you found James chapter 1, I'm going to invite you please to follow along, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 again, but today we'll pay particular attention to verses 5 through 8, I'm going to ask you please to stand in the honor of the reading of God's word as I read this, um, And so he begins, this is also his ESV, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in his ways. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for James. Thank you for this letter. Lord, if we could even be uh, so bold as to say thank you for the martyrdom of Stephen, because you used it to propel those first believers into mission. And so, God, I thank you for the circumstances and for your sovereignty that led to the writing of this letter. Thank you that it still speaks to us today. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use your word to speak to our hearts and our minds today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, would you be seated, please? All right, so that's where we left off last week. So I want us to come back to the same text today, and I want us to look at it from the standpoint, now that we understand that God has a purpose for these trials that enter our lives, let's talk then today about overcoming the trials of life. And so I want to begin by making a clarification or a distinction and say right up front that I don't want you to misunderstand what I mean when I talk about overcoming trials in our lives, we remember that overcoming them does not mean eliminating them from our lives. We remember that overcoming them doesn't mean that there's a formula we can follow to just make them completely go away. That's not what I'm talking about this morning when I talk about overcoming the trials in our lives. What I want you to hear me saying this morning, uh, not is not that there's some formula for removing them altogether. It does not mean ridding them from our lives altogether, even though we wish that were the case. When I talk about overcoming them, I'm coming back to something we talked about last week, and that is persevering through them, or we might even say it this way, handling them or managing them. I don't, Sometimes our language just doesn't do justice to the ways of God, but but going through them the best way possible or the best way we possibly can. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about overcoming them so they don't get the best of us, so they don't wreck our faith, or they don't destroy our faith, okay? So that's what we're talking about today. And so we already said this in verse 2, when you face trials of various kinds— or whenever, because we said last week we're going to be surrounded by them all the time, and the language James uses is language that indicates that they just come one right after another. It's not this idea that one trial or one difficulty is going to come our way, and we're going to have plenty of time and ability to handle that one before God allows another one to come in. That's not the picture at all. James is talking about getting hit from all sides in succession all at once, right? It's this idea of being just inundated by them. And uh, for James, it was a given that believers especially were going to face them. And that's why we turned our attention just briefly last week to John chapter 16. Because Jesus said in John 16, to his disciples, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So everything that I'm saying today, everything I'm saying last week is only true for one reason. It's only true because of Jesus. So when I talk about a Christian being able to overcome, when I talk about a Christian being able to, to uh, these, these musts that I'm going to give you here in just a minute, this is only possible in Christ. And it's only possible because of Christ. Because we are only saved and filled and indwelled by the Holy Spirit because of what Christ accomplished in the relationship that we can have restored with God through him and because of him. So it's all true and only true because of Jesus Christ. He says, I have overcome the world. Yes, you will have tribulation, but I've overcome the world. In the here, in the now, in this physical realm, it's coming, but we know a day is coming when we won't. We live in this already but not yet idea of the kingdom of God. It's already, it's here, it's present, but it's not all yet fully realized. We don't yet fully enjoy all of the benefits in their fullest sense here in the here and now. But we know the day is coming when we'll we'll know it fully. When we'll experience all those blessings fully. And when all the trials will be gone for good once and for all. the, The day is coming. Christ has promised us that. But it's not here yet. And so right now, even in the midst of our trials and our tribulations and our suffering, we have cheer, we can have joy knowing that what Christ has already accomplished. And so we talked about all of this last week, so I don't want to belabor it today. I just want us to be sure that we understand overcoming them doesn't mean eliminating them. So what does it mean? It means understanding them. It means facing them well, facing them the right way. It means not letting these trials, these difficulties, tribulations, whatever term you prefer to use, it means not letting them get the best of you as a believer and robbing you of the joy that is rightfully yours in Christ, not letting them make you bitter, and not letting you turn all of your thoughts towards self-pity in the midst of them. That's what we're talking about when we talk about overcoming our trials, learning to see them as God sees them, these trials we face. It means we learn from them. It means we come out of them with a faith that is deeper, a faith in Christ that is stronger, not weaker, for having gone through them, for having been tested. So we come back then to James chapter 1. I want to just give you three things from the text this morning. Things... That we must know, must know, not must know. Sometimes when I get talking really fast, I don't enunciate very well. I didn't say it must snow. I said three things we must know uh, if we're going to overcome the trials that come into our lives. And first thing is we have to know or we must know what we need. We must know what we need. What do we need? In that moment, when it comes, when I'm getting hit, bam, broadsided, unexpectedly, whatever term, when that trial comes, in that moment, what do I need most? Is it money? Is it pride? Is it intelligence? Is it, what is it? Look here in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom. Let him ask God, if any of you lacks wisdom, the thing that we need in order to see our trials the way that God sees them, the thing that we need if we're going to overcome them in the way we're talking about this morning is wisdom. If you want to notice something here in verse 5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, but then back up in verse 4 in last week's sermon, remember what he said? That God uses our trials to mature us so that we will be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So he wants us to lack nothing and yet here he comes along and he says, but if you lack wisdom, I don't know that it's coincidental that he uses this word lack here or the idea of lack here right here together in these these two verses so close together. I'm not sure that's coincidental. I don't believe that anything in scripture is coincidental because I believe the Holy Spirit inspired the writers to write down what they wrote. So when he's talking about this in verses five through eight, is he's talking about this time period we're in now before God has finished his work. All right, He said he wants us to be steadfast. Let steadfastness have its work so that we may be mature and complete. And we said it's a process, this process of sanctification. We're all going through it all the time. But what are we going to do between now and then? See, What are we going to do between now and then? I'm not perfectly mature. My children can tell you that my wife could tell you that you could probably tell me that you've been around me for an hour and a half the last two weeks. I'm not perfectly mature. I'm not complete. I, I lack. Okay. But prayerfully, hopefully because of, you know, Christian growth, In my relationship with Christ, he is completing me. He is sanctifying me. He's doing his work. I'm doing my part as much as possible as as I can uh, daily to become more like him, right? But what do you do in the meantime? That's what James is talking about. If any of you lacks wisdom, he knows we're not there yet. We're not perfect yet. We're not complete. We're not lacking nothing yet. So he says, if you lack wisdom... and we do. That's his point, and we do lack it. This if clause in verse 5 is what we call a first class conditional. It means he assumes it to be true. It means he assumes it to be, if any of you lacks wisdom, right? He's, he's being nice. It's just a nicer way of saying you lack wisdom, right? You know, it's like, um, if any of you missed last week, oh, of course somebody did, right? But It's just a way of putting a little condition on it, but he knows it's true. Of course he knows some of them, if not all of them, lack wisdom in this sense. And so it's because they do lack it that he writes what he writes. So what we need in the midst of our trials is not more philosophical depth. It's not more theological knowledge. Those are good things to have. What we need is wisdom. What we need is the kind of wisdom that plays such a large part in the book of Proverbs. Keep your finger in James and turn over to Proverbs chapter 4, please. Well, you don't turn over. Turn the page. As preachers, why do we talk like that? Turn over in your Bible. What? Oh, Turn the page to Proverbs chapter 4. Verses 5 through 9 of Proverbs chapter 4. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Get wisdom. And he says, if you wanna grow in wisdom, you gotta get wisdom first. All right? He wants us to have wisdom. Wisdom preserves us. Wisdom is the principal thing, right? Uh, it comes before understanding wisdom. Wisdom brings us honor, wisdom brings rewards. What is wisdom? It's God given understanding that enables us to avoid the paths of wickedness. It's God given understanding that allows us to discern good and evil, right from wrong. It's, it's, it's not knowledge; it's wisdom, and this is the kind of wisdom James says we need to overcome trials in our lives. In the context of trials, and the context of those difficulties, those even persecutions, if you want to use that word when it's appropriate, wisdom is understanding the nature and the purpose of trials, and knowing how to meet them victoriously. Is learning to see my struggles the way God sees them. Wisdom in this context, in this sense, is me learning to see my struggles the way God does. We don't have to be defeated and deflated by our trials. For one to understand them the way James described them back in verses 2 to 4, overcome them by that, by that meaning, and by that and by that understanding, overcome them, then we must recognize our lack of and our need for godly wisdom in our lives and the good news is that kind of godly wisdom is available all we have to do is acknowledge our need for it and ask him for it it does not just fall into our laps this kind of wisdom it doesn't just happen you know uh, some of y'all remember from last week my family and I used to live down in Colombia and Colombians as Latin Americans can have a tendency to just sort of let life happen I don't mean that insultingly it's just cultural right I mean uh, and I have some friends, good friends, believers, who'll be like, you know, I just, I got this I'm going through, and I got this I'm going through, and I got this I'm going through, and I got this I'm going through. And, and sometimes they're asking me for advice, or sometimes they're asking me for financial assistance or something else tangible. And you know how often what I'll respond in those moments? You know what? My prayer for you daily is for God to give you Wisdom. To make good choices, to make right decisions, right? My prayer for you is to have wisdom. You know, hey, Stuart, you know, it was a holiday weekend. I got paid on Friday, but my whole family came over on Saturday. And, and, and this is something we don't fully get in our culture, but shame's a big deal with Latins. And it's like, I didn't want to offend them by not, you know, offering them the fatted calf. And so I spent my whole paycheck you know, entertaining my family on Saturday and Sunday. Now I don't have anything left to eat lunch Tuesday through Wednesday. That right? happens more. It happens here too, obviously. But, you know, in those moments I say, you know what, friend, I'm, sometimes I help, sure, I love them. <laughs> but uh, I tell them, I want you to have wisdom. I want you to have wisdom so you don't find yourself in some of these things, right? With, this is James for us. I want you to have wisdom is what he's saying, right? It doesn't just happen. You have to seek it. We have to ask for it, right? God's not just going to bop us on the head and give us wisdom that we haven't asked for. And that brings us to the second thing, right? We need to know what we need is we need, to, we need wisdom. And second thing, we must know who to ask. Again, this is like right here straight out of the text. I'm not reinventing the wheel this morning. We must know who to ask. If any of you at, lacks wisdom, let him, James says, Ask God. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, it will be given him. So if we want the kind of wisdom James is talking about that will enable us to see our trials the way God sees them, to help us overcome them, then we must ask God to give us that kind of wisdom. Now, on the one hand, this goes without saying. I don't mean to insult your intelligence this morning. Of course we need to ask God if we want this kind of wisdom in order to overcome our trials. But on the other hand, I wonder sometimes if this isn't so obvious of a truth and so simple of a truth that it might get overlooked by Christians in the midst of trying circumstances. Is it not so simple that it could get overlooked? And if not overlooked, maybe at least overshadowed by some of the other things we do in trying to solve these problems. For example, there are some people, maybe I don't know them, Presumably, there are some people who the moment they encounter a trial, reach straight for the telephone. Or in this day and age, they go straight to their status update. You know, you ever see these? These three paragraph, three paragraph long Facebook status updates that are like so totally vague, right? Just enough that you know this person's going through some really bad junk. You know, and it's all terrible, but not enough details for you to know exactly how to pray right there in that moment for them. But, but this long, right? So why? So you'll ask, what's wrong? Oh, my goodness, what are you going to? So you'll send them a private message, right? Because if you put in the comments, oh, what's wrong? They'll never respond, right? So you, you send them a private message. I just read your four-paragraph long. Up, What's the matter, right? Or, you know, in a previous... Years ago, <laughs> reach for the telephone. The minute something's going on, I'm going to reach for the phone. I'm going to reach for my Facebook, right? I need to tell so and so about this. Oh, I need to get her perspective or his perspective on this before I go do anything else. And so, five hours later, right, you've got five different people's opinions, five different people's perspectives on what it is you're going through, and you haven't done a thing about facing the problem, and you haven't spent, not you, but one, hasn't spent so much. As five minutes in prayer with the one person who can actually do something about the problem in the first place. You know? Oh, this is terrible. Let me go call my friend. (laughs) No. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying believers shouldn't reach out to other believers in our moments of, of need. That's not what I'm saying. We should turn to others for support. But the first thing we should do is go straight to the Lord. Asking him for wisdom and for his perspective on that trial. And you know what? Sometimes, sometimes he will reveal to us some sin that was in our life. Sometimes he will reveal to us some offense that we have caused. I'm not saying every trial is some result of something we've done. That's not what I'm saying. But if we will spend that time in prayer, he might show us some things. He might give us the wisdom before we go reach out to social media or Oprah, you know, or Dr. Phil. I don't know. Are these people even still around? I don't know. Uh, He can give us wisdom, give us his perspective. And, folks, I'm obviously not talking about, like, one prayer. Okay, all right, I prayed. Now let me go see what Dr. Phil says. When he says, let him ask God, (laughs) we've done it. (laughs) right, when he says let him, if he lacks wisdom, let him ask God, I know you guys are well taught, you know this, it's a present tense, so it's like ask and keep on asking, right, continual action, continuous activity, let him, if you lack wisdom, ask God for wisdom and keep on asking, asking God for more wisdom. This is the idea that James is trying to get across. Just like in Luke chapter 18, we won't take the time to turn over there right now, the persistent widow, the unjust judge. God is not like the judge who gives because of persistence. Rather, he desires persistence and he answers out of love. But he wants persistence. He wants us to be like the neighbor who just kept coming and knocking and knocking and saying, I got company, I need some bread. He wants that kind of persistence. Let him ask God and keep on asking. And notice how James describes God in verse 5. Let him ask God who gives generously to all and without reproach. He gives generously to all and without reproach. That means two things for you. Believer facing trials, continually reaching out to God for wisdom. What it means is in that moment, in the midst of the junk, forgive me for using such a terribly specific word, in the midst of the junk, you know you need wisdom, you don't understand, you're crying out to God, you're continuously, daily, day by day, petitioning Him for wisdom to understand Understand. You can go with confidence, excuse me, knowing that He will be generous to give you that wisdom. Now, let's be careful here. We don't read something into the text that isn't there. When James is talking here, he says, Who gives generously to all without reproach? He's not talking about a bigger house, a bigger car, a faster boat. A lower handicap on the golf course. He's not talking about any of the, he's talking very specifically right here about God answering the prayer for wisdom. And God will give you that, he says, generously. When you ask God for wisdom to face your trials with the right perspective, to see them the way that God sees them, you can know that this is a prayer God desires to answer. Philemon, not the person Paul wrote the New Testament letter to, but an early Greek poet, called God the lover of gifts. And not in the sense that he loves to receive them the way we do, but in the sense that he loves giving them. God desires to give us wisdom to understand and over our trials, overcome our trials. He allows us to face them, yes, but doesn't mean he wants us to be beaten down by them. He wants us to live victoriously. He says, I have come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. And again, that's not talking about a bigger house or a fancier car. It's talking about spirituality. Spiritual maturity is talking about spiritual blessings, spiritual abundance. He wants us to have these things. He will give you as much wisdom as you need to face your trials if you will keep asking him for it. And when we ask him for wisdom, he will be generous. This is one prayer you can know is never outside of God's will for you to pray. Lord, I need your wisdom to understand this. You don't ever have to wonder if that's a prayer that's within the boundaries of god's will for your life or if that's a prayer he wants to answer in the affirmative god i want a bigger house okay maybe that one sometimes you should question your motives but god i need more wisdom just pray it you don't ever have to wonder if that's a prayer that's in keeping with his will it will always and forever be he wants you to have wisdom and he will be generous And it says he gives without reproach, so he will not be critical. He will not be critical when we come asking for wisdom, without reproach. You see, there was a tendency for some among the Jews to say a harsh word or two when giving. I know Christians in the 21st century would never do that. We always give, what was it? Hilariously is one way to translate the Second Corinthians, all right. But there was a tendency among some of the first-century Jews to kind of <laughs> say, you know, they didn't just love. You know that to this day. Uh, this is totally off-topic. I'm sorry, but uh, in the synagogues, I don't know about a a a. Uh, messianic congregation like the one you guys share your building with here but in the synagogues they don't do tithes and offerings where they pass the plate and stuff like they, they have dues they have annual dues I had a friend of mine it was a converted Jew completed Jew and he said this is the strangest thing this pastoring of the offering plate I said what do you guys do he goes we have annual dues really that didn't strike you as strange no all no. right well yeah you see it's 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 compelled you know Annual dues is something that's compelled. It's not given freely, generously, right? And so there was this tendency even in the first century to just not want to give or to give with the idea that, hey, I'll draw some interest off of this, right? This is the fill-in-the-blank time this month that they've asked me, you know, for this, right? It was this a lot of times we sinful human beings can tend to have a critical spirit that accompanies giving under certain circumstances, this is never, ever, 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 ever the case with God. When James says he gives without reproach, it means that God will never accompany any gift with criticism. right? I won't ask for a show of hands. Some of you know what it's like to bail a child out of a sticky situation right? And I don't mean bail in the sense of bail. I'm not, again, I'm not asking for a show of hands. Uh, but but some of you know what it's like. And isn't there just that human tendency, all right, son, Here's here it is. Now, you remember the last 27 times you got into this mess, what I told you when I handed you, you this envelope. You know, there's a tendency to say that word. I'm just going to remind you what I told you the last time. I'm just you know, if you'd be wiser with it this time, you won't get into that situation again. That's the, that's, just, that's the flesh. We are humans, right? God will never accompany his gifts with criticism. He gives out of his good pleasure and he gives out of his character because it is his nature to do so. So when we come asking for wisdom, he will never say, I gave you wisdom last month. What would you do with it? he won't do it all right this is the fifth time in a week you've come asking me for wisdom what's in it for me what are you gonna do with it he's not that way that's not God when we come asking for wisdom again and again and again and again James says he will give us wisdom We know what we need. We need wisdom, and we know who to ask. We ask a good, gracious Father, right? We don't run to Dr. Phil. Is he even still around? I don't even know. We don't run to the Christian Living section of the local Christian bookstore. Those things are good. That's not our first reach. We don't run for the phone. We don't run for Facebook. We go to God. We must know who to ask. We ask Him. So we must know what we need, wisdom. We must know who to ask. We ask God. seems so simple, but it's so true. And we must know how to ask, how to ask. Look again at verses 6 through 8. I'm sorry, I get long-winded. I just enjoy this. I love God's Word. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in his ways. How then should we ask? Confidently, confidently, or with confidence. You know, these three verses right here, verses six to eight, probably could be a sermon unto themselves. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. We must ask with confidence. Back up in chapter 3, we talked about putting our faith to the test. God allows these trials to come into our lives. He allows us to face these circumstances knowing that it tests our faith to go through them. Genuine faith, we've said time and again, is more than accepting the facts of Christianity. To believe is to be confident that God has done what he said he would do, that he will do what he says he will do. To believe is to be confident that God will give what is requested. So if you ask for wisdom, expect wisdom to be given. And I don't want to put words in James's mouth this morning, but it's almost as if he's saying if you ask for wisdom, expect wisdom or don't ask. Don't go to God, you know, well, God, I know you're probably not going to want to do this for me, but maybe. James is saying, don't even go to God like that when it comes to wisdom. No doubting, let him ask without doubting, ask in faith, no doubting. It describes a person here when he talks about a double-minded person, he's talking about a person... Who's like, mm, you know, I'm wavering between two options here. I guess I could ask God or I could not ask God. Should I ask him or shouldn't I? Do you, why? Who else can give you godly wisdom? He's the only one who can. So he's talking about a person who says one minute, yeah, I believe God's who I need to go to. I believe God will give me the wisdom I need. And then out of the very next minute going, you know, I'm not really sure I should go to God with this because I'm really not sure he'll give me the wisdom for this one. James is saying, don't be that guy. Don't be that lady. Don't be that person. Don't limit this just to the words you say either. I'm not one of these people that talks about speaking your reality into existence or anything like this. But don't just limit this to your words. Let's let's not let our hearts be this way either. Divided, questioning, doubting when it comes to our faith. And look at this vivid picture that James gives over here in verse In verse uh, 6, he says, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And for a long time, I used to picture, you know, like a beach ball. You ever seen that one random stray beach ball that gets abandoned and forgotten about, and it kind of gets out there, and you just kind of watch it doing this, bouncing up and down. So for a long time, when I come to this verse, I'd be like, yeah, I don't want to be like that beach ball. Just bouncing around. But listen to the language a little more carefully. He doesn't say like a person on a wave. He says, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Not like someone in the waves, but the wave itself. Now picture the waves, right? Cresting. Then there's the trough. Up. Up down, right? Sometimes lakes lakes are maybe better examples of this than oceans, right? Especially when he says driven and tossed by the wind. You know, you ever go out on a lake after a good rain when there's no wind at all and the lake's just smooth as glass, right? But then sometimes right before a storm and the wind comes, and a lake can start to look kind of like an ocean, you know? This is the image, right? Here comes the wind and now, oh, here they go. Up and down, up and down, up and down. The wind is this thing the waves can't control. The water doesn't control the wind, right? Anybody got, physicist, chemist, What, what, what are we? Natural biologist, I don't know, marine biologist? I don't think we have to be to get this. Waves don't control the wind, do they? No, Stuart, they don't, all right? The wave has no control over the wind. The wind just comes upon the wave, just like trials come upon you. And what does the water do? Up and down, up and down, bouncing all around, all over the place. And James is saying, don't be the wave. He says, the prayer that moves God to respond must be marked by constancy. Marked by the constancy of unwavering faith right? So the wind comes or the trial comes. He's saying, don't be the wave that's just all over the place because the wind came. He's saying, you stay constant in your faith, in a good God, in a loving Father, in a powerful Savior who will answer the prayer for wisdom. Unwavering faith. Now, sometimes he's slower to answer than we would like, but that's a different sermon for a different day. For that person who doubts must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, because he's a double-minded man, unstable in all all of his ways. Now, when he says that man, this is derogatory. It's derogatory, that guy, that person, you know. And double-minded, double-souled, double double psyched is is sort of what the Greek's going for there. It has the word psychos in it, right? It's a double-souled person. It's like one part of the person deep down, I believe. Another part over here, I don't believe. I believe. I don't believe. And he says if that person is that torn that they can't even ask for wisdom without doubting, he says they're unstable in all their ways, right? Spiritual life marked by indecisiveness, ineffectiveness, right? Now that sounds kind of gloomy there, doesn't it? It doesn't have to be because the emphasis is on the positive, right? I mean, he kind of winds it down with some of the negative, but the emphasis is on the positive. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose supposed to receive anything from the Lord because he's double-minded and he's unstable. He's ineffective, he's indecisive. That person is. He says, but you, Now I'm backing up, ask in faith without doubt doubting. If we will ask for wisdom to understand, wisdom to overcome, persevere through these trials, believing that he'll give that wisdom. Now listen carefully, the wisdom is not always the why answer. Having wisdom to face it and overcome it and fight through it is not the same thing as receiving the answer as to why. We talked about that last week. Sometimes we'll get the answer why, sometimes we won't. Joseph got to the end of his life. He was able to look backwards And look at all those circumstances, and he was able to see the why. Job died never having read what we call chapter 1. He never saw the why. So sometimes we'll get the why, sometimes we won't. What we're talking about here is believing that God will give wisdom doesn't necessarily mean he's going to help us understand the why or the reason. It means that he'll give us his mind in the midst of it. He'll give us his mind. He'll help us to see our circumstances the way he sees them in the midst of it. And he'll be faithful to his word. He will be faithful to his character. He will give us wisdom generously, generously give us the wisdom we need to face our trials. He never tires of our asking for wisdom. Never tires of our asking him for wisdom. So, what do we need to overcome trials? We need wisdom. Who do we ask? We ask God. And how do we ask? Confidently or with confidence. He doesn't promise His children a life free of trials altogether, but He does promise us wisdom in the midst of them, wisdom to face them, wisdom to face them with His perspective, and wisdom to confront them victoriously. But we have to ask. So let's do that right now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that it's instructive. We thank you that written some 2,000 years ago, it is just as alive and active as it was then. It does not return void. And so we thank you, Lord, for this message today about wisdom, about your character, about who you are. Father, we know that trials come, and I pray, God, that you would help us to have wisdom to face them in a way that honors you. Lord, we know you use them. We saw this last week. We know you use them, Lord, to test us, to mature us, to give us patience and perseverance and all of these. You have your reasons. And, Lord, what I pray for is the wisdom to face them rightly in a way that honors you even when we don't understand your reasons. So, God, we pray for that sort of wisdom, thanking you that in Christ Jesus we know that you have already overcome all of them. And so we just pray, God, you give us the strength, the ability the wisdom to respond as you would have us respond. We pray these things in Jesus' name.